Welcome to the Improve the News podcast for Wednesday, April 26, 2023, where we separate the spin from the facts. I'm Scott Wallace. And I'm Melissa Topshire with today's headlines. U.S. President Joe Biden announces his re-election bid. An explosion in Pakistan kills at least 17. A report claims the U.S. talked Ukraine down from attacking Moscow. A panel alleges the U.S. COVID response was incompetent. Russia hosts talks between Turkey and Syria. India rebukes a magazine's depiction of its growing population. North Dakota's governor signs a strict abortion ban. A mob burns 13 suspected Haitian gang members to death. Spain exhumes the remains of fascist leader Primo de Rivera. In our first story, U.S. President Biden announces his re-election bid. Here are the facts as agreed upon by the Associated Press, The Daily Mail, Fox News, USA Today, Euronews, and Politico. U.S. President Joe Biden on Tuesday officially announced his candidacy for re-election in 2024 with a three-minute video coming on the fourth anniversary of declaring his candidacy for the White House in 2019 and promising to heal the soul of the nation. The announcement video included footage from the January 6 riots and abortion protests, criticism of MAGA Republicans, and a list of achievements during his time in the White House, adding that he wants to finish the job. In response to the video, in which Biden also confirmed that current VP Kamala Harris would again be his 2024 running mate, former President Donald Trump said that he looks forward to debating Biden, assuming that he wins the Republican primary. Biden is expected to have a more straightforward route to the debate stage, as Biden leads his main Democratic contenders, including former candidate Marianne Williamson and Robert F. Kennedy Jr. in polling numbers. In addition to contentious political issues such as the nation's 2021 withdrawal from Afghanistan, economic woes, and the war in Ukraine, many voters have expressed concern regarding Biden's age. He's currently the oldest U.S. president in history and would be 86 at the end of the second term. As an expectedly heated election moves closer, Congress is almost perfectly divided between Democrats and Republicans, with Democrats having a slim majority in the Senate and Republicans leading the House. Thanks for those facts, Melissa. We have a Republican narrative spin on this story from The New York Post. The American people don't want to see Joe Biden win a second term in the White House. Besides his dwindling mental capacity, Biden has made a series of horrendous mistakes that have seriously damaged the U.S. From shoddy domestic policies that have hurt the economy to throwing away millions of dollars via his catastrophic withdrawal from Afghanistan, Biden has been a terrible president and must be defeated in 2024. And here's the Democratic narrative from CNN. Though Biden may not be the best Democratic candidate in recent memory, he's a strong opponent who is essentially the only Democrat who can take on what will likely be a race against Donald Trump. As the Republican Party slides toward extremism, the U.S. needs a president who has defeated MAGA before. Indeed, 2024 will be another existential election for American democracy. And from time to time, we have statistics-based nerd narratives provided by the Metaculous Prediction Community. 
This one says there is a 78% chance that Joe Biden will be the Democratic nominee for the 2024 U.S. presidential election, according to the Metaculous Prediction community. Now, Melissa, 78% sounds like a lot, but usually it's a foregone conclusion that the sitting president would be the nominee. So 78 is pretty low in this case, right? I guess so. Yeah, I, I, this is the first time in my recent memory that I've felt like the sitting president didn't have the full support of their yeah. own party. Terror and tragedy in Pakistan as at least 17 are killed in police station explosions. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Radio Free Europe, U.S. News and World Report and BBC News. At least 17 people were killed and more than 50 injured after explosions rocked a counterterrorism office in northwest Pakistan on Monday, local officials have said. The blasts, which took place in Swat Valley, a region historically home to many Islamic militants until they were forced out by a government operation in 2009, was initially blamed on terrorism, but officials later clarified there was no evidence of an attack. A spokesman for provincial police said that ammunition caught fire, most probably due to an electric short circuit. He added, no evidence of an attack from outside has been established so far. Swat Valley Police Chief Shafiullah Gondapur said the dead include nine policemen, five detainees, and three civilians. He joined provincial authorities in ruling out a terror attack. Nonetheless, the outlawed Tariq-e-Taliban, or TTP, also known as the Pakistani Taliban, have made a gradual comeback in tribal districts of the region, as peace talks with government officials have largely stalled. In January, more than 80 people were killed at a mosque inside the Peshawar police headquarters. Thank you, Scott, for the facts on that story. We'll begin this round of Narrative Spins with Narrative A from Geo News. While the nature of the blast is still being investigated, there is no evidence at this stage to suggest it was a terror attack. Early surges suggest that a short circuit in the ammunition depot is to blame for this tragic loss of life. Speculation should be kept to a minimum for now. And Narrative B comes from South Asian Voices. While this particular incident may not have resulted from the actions of local insurgents, there has been a dramatic uptick in attacks by terrorist groups since late last year. Pakistan's government needs to take assertive action to ensure that terrorism is not able to flourish in this region as it once did. According to a recent report, the U.S. talked Ukraine down from attacking Moscow. Here are the facts as agreed upon by the Washington Post, Ukraine's Kapravda, Politico, the Associated Press, Al Jazeera, and TASS. Fearful of severe Russian retaliation, U.S. officials talked Ukraine down from a plan to attack Moscow, according to a new Washington Post report. The attacks were planned to coincide with the one-year anniversary of the war on February 22nd, two days before the CIA circulated a report, revealed by the recent Pentagon leaks, that stated Kyiv had agreed at Washington's request to postpone strikes on Moscow. The report was criticized by Mikhailo Podoliak, an advisor to Ukrainian President Zelensky. He said such publications with the obligatory reference to anonymous sources fulfill only one catastrophic function. They shape public opinion in Western capitals as if Ukraine was an unreasonable, infantile, and impulsive country that is dangerous for adults to trust with serious weapons. 
Meanwhile, a separate Politico report suggested that Biden administration officials are quietly bracing for the possibility that Ukraine's spring counteroffensive will fall short of expectations, thus increasing the pressure on the U.S. to seek a political solution. While U.S. officials said they're providing Ukraine with everything it needs for a successful attack, they're also broaching the subject of a possible ceasefire if the plans don't succeed. Elsewhere, Russia's foreign minister, Sergei Lavrov, traveled to New York, where he chaired a U.N. Security Council meeting on Monday during Russia's month-long presidency of the body, where he was condemned by U.N. Chief Antonio Guterres, as well as representatives of the U.S., U.K., France, and other Western allies. Lavrov, meanwhile, defended the invasion. At the meeting, the U.S. ambassador to the U.N. also called on Russia to release former U.S. Marine Paul Whelan and Wall Street Journal reporter Evan Gershkovich. Whelan was sentenced to 16 years imprisonment on espionage charges in 2020, while Gershkovich currently awaits trial on the same offenses. Meanwhile, Russia's foreign ministry spokeswoman criticized the U.S. for failing to issue visas to reporters that were due to travel with Lavrov to the meeting. She threatened that Russia would respond accordingly without specifying what actions it would take. The pro-establishment narrative continues to be supplied by PBS NewsHour. This invasion is an egregious violation of international law. Putin's ultimate aim is to restore the Soviet empire, even if it takes massive bloodshed and false pretexts such as calling the 2014 Ukrainian revolution after an election a coup. This unprovoked attack is the latest chapter in Putin's Orwellian attempt to rewrite history. And the pro-Russia narrative by the, by the National Security Archive. NATO and the U.S. have ignored Russia's security concerns by breaking its promise not to expand eastward in return for German reunification. These concerns are legitimate, and taking them seriously would have avoided the Ukraine tragedy. And we have another nerd narrative provided by the Metaculous Prediction Community. This one says there's a 1% chance that Ukraine will join NATO before the year 2024. According to a report, the U.S. COVID response exposed a collective national incompetence. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Axios, Washington Post, and USA Today. A group of crisis experts and federal advisors called the COVID Crisis Group released a report Tuesday detailing the U.S.'s alleged lack of disaster preparedness and coordination that it claims led to an unraveling of the nation's pandemic response. The book, titled Lessons from the COVID War, an investigative report, was released by 34 expert physicians, epidemiologists, and former senior government officials with the promise of providing a, quote, dispassionate guide to the overheated arguments about the pandemic. The group first assembled two years ago in the event that Congress or the president would call for a 9-11-style commission to investigate the pandemic. When no such commission was established, they decided to issue their own report. The investigation, which included nearly 300 listening sessions, was headed by former 9-11 Commission Executive Director Philip Zelico and Mark McClellan, the former Food and Drug Administration Director under the George W. Bush administration. It criticized the CDC's academic culture and slow decisions on school reopening guidance and warnings about the virus's spread, alleging that the government was using a 19th century cholera outbreak system to deal with a 21st century problem. The crisis group concludes that the U.S. isn't prepared for the next pandemic and that the public health 
healthcare and biopharma industries must be brought together with a predetermined leader, though it says it doesn't necessarily have to be the CDC. Thank you, Scott, for the facts on that story. We'll start this round of spins with a pro-establishment narrative coming from the New York Times. While the U.S.'s COVID response was flawed, leaders faced with unprecedented circumstances did the best they could. As COVID will likely not be the last pandemic, the government must use this as a learning experience to develop a streamlined course of action for the next time a deadly virus reaches its shores. This includes predetermined contracts with diagnostic test companies to develop and distribute test kits, agreements with insurance companies to cover the costs of those tests, and an abundant supply of protective equipment. And the establishment critical narrative comes from reason. The U.S. was capable of combating COVID early on, but the corrupt CDC, through its pursuit of streamlining the response process, actively hindered people from implementing appropriate measures. One of the most appalling examples of this, according to former FDA Director Scott Gottlieb, was when the agency deliberately scrapped the idea of mass testing at nursing homes from a Science Journal article. The world's leading infectious disease institution knew exactly what it was doing, but didn't care about who would suffer. And there's another nerd narrative from the Metaculous Prediction community saying there's an 11% chance that there will be a novel pathogen that kills over 25 million people between 2022 and 2031. In our next story, Russia hosts talks between Turkey and Syria. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Al Arabia, Reuters, Al Monitor, Middle East Monitor, Middle East Eye, and the Daily Sabah. Russian Defense Minister Sergei Shoigu on Tuesday met with his counterparts from Turkey, Syria, and Iran in Moscow in a bid to rebuild Turkish-Syrian ties after years of bilateral tensions over the Syrian civil war. According to separate statements by Ankara and Moscow, the four ministers reaffirmed their intention to preserve Syria's territorial integrity as well as the importance of stepping up efforts to ensure the swift return of Syrian refugees to their home country. A day earlier, Turkish Defense Minister Hulusi Akar said Ankara was seeking a settlement of the conflict in Syria within the framework of the Moscow-brokered four-way talks. The high-level gathering comes after the Deputy Foreign Minister of Turkey, Russia, Iran, and Syria held talks during a two-day meeting in Russia in early April and agreed to continue consultations on the Syrian situation. The reconciliation process between Ankara and Damascus launched in late December 2022 with a meeting of the defense ministers of Russia, Syria, and Turkey in Moscow. Russia backs the Syrian government, as does Iran, which has since also joined the consultations. Meanwhile, Turkish Foreign Minister Mevlut Çavuşoğlu emphasized on Monday that Ankara will not withdraw its troops from northern Iraq and Syria, claiming such a move would result in a power vacuum that terrorists would rush to fill in. Narrative A comes from Dawn. Turkey's further detente with Syria is a blow to Syrian rebels and their fight against the brutal Assad regime. Yet, while Erdogan has moved away from the goal of regime change in Syria as part of Turkish-Syrian reconciliation, Turkey is unlikely to withdraw from Syria and abandon its local client forces in its fight against the Kurdish YPG group. Despite recent signs of improvement, it would be naive to expect ties between Ankara and Damascus to return to normal anytime soon. Narrative B comes from Press TV. 
Turkey has not only deployed troops in Syria, violating Syria's territorial integrity, but has also played a key role in backing militants seeking to topple the Assad government. However, this only underscores the need for talks to resolve differences between Damascus and Ankara, taking into account mutual security interests. The talks in Moscow, backed by regional power Iran, offer Turkey a unique opportunity to work with credible mediators for peace while improving Ankara's security calculus. And we have another nerd narrative. This one says there's a 29% chance that Turkey will declare sanctions on Russia before the year 2024, according to the Metaculous Prediction community. Well, it sounds like a good thing that they're talking. Um, And when they they talked about the four-way talks, it reminded me of of the early 90s. Remember when you used to have, like, like, do you have four-way calling? I remember an episode of Step by Step where that was a big thing in like 90s sitcoms to have the conference call with a bunch of people in squares. And then like there would always be someone waiting because they, hey, I'm going to go to this other person. You'd see the other person just kind of waiting, checking their nails or whatever. Like that was big in the 90s. And then the hamburger phone. Oh, yeah. I mean, oh, yeah. Phones, the shape of other stuff were really big. Um, (laughs) Oh, I was watching I was watching some old YouTube clip of TV from the 90s. And something was like brought to you by 1010220. And all remember all those 1010321s and 101020s? They were oh, all they were like, like the numbers that you dialed. You would to... dial them to get a certain rate on your long distance calls. It would be like right. 49 cents for 10 minutes of calling if you do 101020. But then there was all different ones. There was like a 1010 war of uh, 101021. Mm. And like Chris Rock was the host of one of that. You know, they would. <laughs> Like, just like now we're inundated with like drug commercials. It was like weird long distance uh, code commercials is what we had before. Indian ministers rebuke Der Spiegel for what they call a racist cartoon. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Business Today, NDTV, Hindustan Times, and The Guardian. A cartoon in the German magazine Der Spiegel, caricaturing India as it becomes more populous than China, has been criticized as being racist by Indian ministers. The viral cartoon compares the development levels of India and China. The cartoon depicts an overcrowded train of Indians passing a Chinese bullet train. Social media users and politicians have slammed the cartoon as being racist and derogatory. Bharatiya Janata Party, or BJP, National Vice President, Bihayant J. Panda, criticized the German magazine, pointing to Germany's difficult history of racism and the Holocaust as reasons the magazine should be extra cognizant of the impact of their allegedly racist and derogatory caricatures. According to the UN, India will overtake China as the world's most populous country this month. Thank you, Scott. We'll start this round of spins with Narrative A from the Hindustan Times. India has a fast-growing economy that will likely pass Germany in terms of GDP shortly. This cartoon just goes to show the West's fear of India's success. This distasteful and xenophobic cartoon has no resemblance to India's reality. And Narrative B comes from Mint. India, particularly under Modi, is quick to dismiss any negative portrayal as malicious misinformation. While India has surpassed China in terms of population, China is still miles ahead developmentally and demographically. The talent dividend has not disappeared and China has more educated workers. Size is not the only thing that matters. You hear that? Zing! (laughs) (laughs) Finally, a narrative that I can can, uh, can get, get, get behind, yeah. 
North Dakota passes an abortion ban. Here are the facts as agreed upon by the Associated Press, NBC, CBS, Fox News, Casper Star, and BBC News. North Dakota's Republican Governor Doug Burgum signed legislation Monday limiting most abortions throughout pregnancy, with some exceptions up to six weeks gestation. While designed to take effect immediately, last month the state Supreme Court ruled abortion bans will remain blocked pending an ongoing lawsuit. Lawmakers said they passed this bill to show the courts that North Dakotans want to restrict abortion. Burgum's signature came after North Dakota state senators overwhelmingly passed the bill Wednesday. The governor said it clarifies and refines existing state law, reaffirming that North Dakota is a pro-life state. The new law would make performing an abortion a Class C felony, except in cases of rape or incest before six weeks gestation or for medical emergencies that develop after six weeks. Physicians in violation of the bill could face a maximum penalty of five years imprisonment and a $10,000 fine. After the Supreme Court overturned the 1973 Roe v. Wade decision that legalized abortion nationwide, multiple state laws banning abortion were triggered. No surprise, we have some diametrically opposed political spins on this story. Let's start with the right spin from Breitbart. North Dakota joins other brave U.S. states as it takes the bold and righteous step to protect the lives of the most innocent. As a culturally pro-life state, North Dakota saw its last abortion clinic close last year, and this law reinforces the state's commitment to saving babies. This legislation is welcomed news, and the pro-life movement will continue to grow stronger as more states stand with the unborn. Here's the left narrative from Vox. The North Dakota abortion ban defies both the law and the rights of women as it grants virtually no protection for women seeking access to an abortion. North Dakotans will be deprived of their bodily autonomy and rape victims will be forced to carry their abuser's child if they do not make a choice within six weeks. This law is against women and it cannot stand. And even the nerds have a voice in this debate. The Metaculous community predicts that there's a 5% chance that elective abortion will be banned nationally in the U.S. before 2030. A mob burns suspected Haitian gang members to death. Here are the facts, as agreed upon by BBC News, Voice of America, Fox News, the L.A. Times, ABC News, and The Guardian. Thirteen suspected gang members were burned to death Monday by a mob in Haiti's capital after being seized while police searched their vehicle. The suspects were reportedly beaten with gasoline-soaked tires before being set alight in Port-au-Prince. The violence was a grim reminder of the lawless situation in Port-au-Prince, where criminal gangs have taken control of an estimated 60% of the city since the July 2021 assassination of President Jovenel Moise. Haiti police said officers in the Canop Vert section stopped and searched a minibus for contraband. They confiscated weapons from suspects before they were, quote, unfortunately lynched by members of the population. Six more burned bodies were found in a nearby neighborhood later on Monday. Residents claimed that police officers had killed them and that residents had burned the bodies, but the accounts were unable to be verified independently. According to witnesses, the suspects were believed to have been members of a gang called Craze Barrier, which translates to breaking barriers. The leader of the group is Vitel Am Innocent, who is accused of helping kidnap 17 U.S. missionaries in October 2021 
and is also a suspect involved in the assassination of Moise. Over six days in late April, more than 70 people were killed in clashes between gang members in Haiti's largest slum, Cité Soleil. About 40 of the dead were shot or stabbed. Two were children. The UN Secretary General Antonio Guterres suggested that Haiti's security situation is comparable to countries in armed conflict. Thank you, Scott, for that horrifying story. We'll begin with Narrative A from Congressional Research Service. The political, social, and humanitarian situation in Haiti has deteriorated since Moïse's assassination. The national police has been challenged by gangs with control over territory, highways, ports, and the delivery of humanitarian aid. Homicides and kidnappings are up, and gang-related violence is threatening national security and stability. Haiti needs more foreign assistance to resolve its problems. And Narrative B comes from DevEx. The Security Council is suffering from Haiti fatigue. Nothing is moving forward. There is a reluctance to send foreign troops to Haiti because of a deepening skepticism that Haiti can prosper, even with billions of dollars of foreign aid and security support. It also dredges up bad memories about an earlier UN peacekeeping mission whose blue helmets were involved in a serious cholera outbreak and became embroiled in a series of sexual exploitation scandals. And there's another nerd narrative here saying there's a 50% chance that Haiti will become a World Bank upper-middle-income country by January 2050. That's according to the Metaculous Prediction Community. Spain exhumes the remains of a fascist leader, Primo de Rivera. Here are the facts as agreed upon by NBC, Barron's, Al Jazeera, and BBC News. On Monday, the Spanish government dug up and reburied the remains of José Antonio Primo de Rivera, who founded the fascist Falange movement that supported General Francisco Franco's dictatorship. The move, coming 120 years after his birth, removed the body from a lavish basilica where the remains of Franco once rested and transferred it to San Isidro Cemetery in Madrid, where he will be laid alongside other family members. This decision came six months after Spain passed a law aimed at tackling the legacy of the 1936-39 Civil War and the decades of dictatorship that followed. Primo de Rivera founded Falange in 1933, which, along with Franco's regime, became a pillar of the military and Spain's Roman Catholic Church. Primo de Rivera's body was buried in four other sites before it was moved in 1959 to the Valley of Cuelgamoros, a mausoleum in the mountains north of Madrid. Franco built the structure and was later buried there after his death in 1975. Though Cuelgamoros was built by anti-fascist Republican prisoners to honor the roughly 34,000 victims from both sides of the Civil War, it had become a visible and notorious symbol of the Franco regime. The exhumation, an effort to prevent the glorification of the country's totalitarian past amid fears of the far right gaining ground across Europe, was met with a small group of Primo de Rivera sympathizers. The right-wing Vox party became the third most popular in Spain after the 2019 general election and now holds approximately 15 percent support nationally. Thanks for that rundown, Melissa. We have a left narrative from Dawn. This was the right move for victims of Franco's dictatorship, modern-day Spanish society, and the Primo de Rivera family, who had requested his body be exhumed and transferred to the family cemetery. Spain is still grappling with its horrific fascist past, 
and it's the government's responsibility to help the country heal from its sins and protect its democratic future. And here's the right narrative from The Federalist. If society truly wants to pursue a better future, memorials of historically evil leaders should not be torn down or removed. If people are to learn and understand the events of the past, memorials of those events and figures should be publicly displayed to ensure ignorance doesn't lead to repeating the past. Most modern-day supporters of these figures don't wish to revive their ideologies, but rather contemplate their legacy and transgressions. Our final story, Nepal issues a record number of Everest permits. Here are the facts as agreed upon by CNN, Asia News Network, and Al Jazeera. On Monday, Nepali officials announced they had issued a record 454 permits for climbers to summit Mount Everest between April and May, peak climbing season in Nepal. That will allow over 900 climbers to attempt the trek. As of Friday, permits have been issued to 96 Chinese climbers and 87 American climbers. Closely following were 40 permits issued to Indians, 21 to Canadians, and 19 issued to Russians. The Nepalese Tourism Department said the number of permits issued could increase as they approach peak season. The announcement comes four years after overcrowding was blamed for the deaths of four climbers on the mountain. In 2019, a long line of climbers was forced to wait to ascend to the summit in freezing temperatures due to overcrowding. The wait caused climbers to deplete their oxygen supply, resulting in illness, exhaustion, and in the case of four individuals, death. Mountaineering is a significant source of income for Sherpas, who support climbers on their ascent. The job does come with dangers. As just two weeks ago, three Nepali Sherpas went missing after trekking up Everest to deliver supplies ahead of the season opening. As climbing season on Everest opens, Nepal, home to eight of the world's highest peaks, has extended a ban enacted five years ago restricting solo climbs on Everest to now include solo treks throughout the whole country due to the dangers of hiking alone. Thank you, Scott. We'll begin this round with a narrative A from the Kathmandu Post. While the Nepali government has taken extraordinary measures to prevent the repeat of the tragic deaths in 2019, issuing this many permits is risky. Traffic jams can be avoided when the weather is good, but under harsher conditions, which shorten the season, more climbers are forced onto the mountain, slowing the ability to ascend and descend, a danger outside of Nepal's control. What is in the government's control, however, is the number of permits issued, and it needs to be reconsidered. And Narrative B comes from the CBC. It's not the number of permits issued, but rather who they are given to that is the problem. Many agencies market Everest as a challenge for everyone, when in reality it's a dangerous journey that only the very skillful should attempt. This is accompanied by a poor vetting system that allows inexperienced hikers on the mountain who are ultimately the ones behind the deadly bottlenecks. Melissa, are you familiar with the... uh the frozen bodies that are that litter the trail up Everest? No, I don't know much about Everest. So 300 people have died on Everest, climbing Everest before, and only 100 bodies have been recovered. Oh, dear. So what happens to these people that die is they're just frozen. And as you're climbing up Mount Everest, you pass by frozen bodies. You can see them. That's crazy. The reason the bodies are there is because it's so difficult to climb up in the first place, it's even more difficult to try to recover, you know, a dead body. A dead body would need to be carried down by a team of Sherpas, which then would risk their own lives, which just doesn't, 
it doesn't uh, doesn't make yeah, economic sense. Yeah, it's not sense. like you're at your local ski resort. No. So if and, and it's gonna come up. and it's freezing cold up there. So once you die up there, you freeze and you stay frozen. Apparently, um, there are some dead bodies up there that serve as like kind of signposts. Everyone knows to turn left at this body. So. Oh yeah. God. Yeah. I, I know you're not even joking when you no, say I'm that. No, I'm not. But, but that's yeah. wild. Yep. Thanks for listening to the Improve the News podcast for Wednesday, April 26, 2023. Each day we use machine learning to read about 5,000 articles from about 100 newspapers and figure out which ones are about the same stories. For each major story, our editorial team then extracts both the key facts that all articles agree on and the key narratives where the articles differ. For more information on Improve the News, please visit our website, improvethenews.org. You can also download the Improve the News app on the Apple App Store or Google Play. For Scott Wallace, I'm Melissa Topshire, inviting you to join us next time on Improve the News. Improve the News.